HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show was sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network, broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. All right, it's Monday, and it's time for your favorite show. Get out the pens and pencils, people. Get your paper. You're going to take notes. Got a great story for you today. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights, and I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and this is the Heritage Radio Network. Um, I like to get all that stuff out. It makes me feel like I'm actually officially a radio host, so even though I've been doing this for almost nine years, you know, like I still have to remind myself that there's some sort of professional aspect to what I'm doing doing. Um, I'm not just making it all up. Anyway, today we're going to be talking about land grabbing. And for those of you who read my book and those of you who have followed my stories on this network, uh, you'll know that this is a subject I return to periodically. Um, and my dear friend, Eric Hoffner, formerly of Orion, but now of Manga Bay, um, which is a fantastic digital online magazine uh, about uh, food and environmental report. Well, environmental reporting primarily around the world. It's a great publication. I love it. Um, I read it pretty much every week. I take a look to see what's going on. So Eric turned me on to this series. Um, the author is with me today in the studio. His name is Philip Jacobson. He is a Jakarta-based journalist who has tr- lived in... Oh, God, I'm going to... Tr- Phil? Yeah. How do you say it? Uh, Joe Jakarta. Joe Jakarta. Banda Aceh. 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 And the capital of Indonesia... Presumably that's Jakarta. Jakarta, yeah. Yeah. Um, Reporting mainly on environmental issues, conflict over land and natural resources, and all things Indonesia. He is also a media trainer with experience in forestry reporting workshops. If we have time, we'll talk about that. And in his spare time, he likes to explore out-of-the-way places in the region on his motorcycle, if possible. Yeah. Right. And so are you Indonesian yourself? Uh, I'm American. I have no Indonesian blood, but people oh. often think that. So. Well, you, you have a slightly exotic look to you. I mean, I could see how you probably fit in pretty well. Yeah, it helps, actually. I sure it does. Yeah, because you don't have quite the Asia, as Asian a look, but 
you know, borderline. If I were not really paying attention, I could see. I could pass for half Indonesian. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Anyway, so you wrote, uh, this is a three-part series that is accompanied as well by some um, documentary footage, um, and it is called Indonesia for Sale. So tell us a little bit about that. Uh, about the whole project, and then we'll talk about the first part, which just got published, which is called um, Palm Oil Fiefdom. We're going to dig into that. So go. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Indonesia for Sale is a series of articles uh, produced as part of a collaboration between Mangabe and the Gecko Project, which is an initiative of EarthSight, a UK-based nonprofit. So Mangabe is working with the Gecko Project to produce these articles. And this first installment, the Palm Oil Fiefdom, I co-wrote with Tom Johnson of the Gecko Project, and he's the head of research at EarthSight. So we are producing, um, we have feature stories that we're publishing throughout the fall, as well as a number of contextual articles, and plenty of multimedia. There's photos, there's videos, um, which are meant to direct people to the articles. And they also stand alone as really fine pieces of work. Yeah, if you do say so yourself. Well, and those are, I didn't make the multimedia. We have you know, professional photographers yeah, no, and videos. It really, it's a very impressive effort, I have to say, because it is so comprehensive and it does involve, you know, not just an article with some photographs, but like, as, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, it has these documentary um, elements that go along with the articles, which presumably expand on that or just illustrate the article, the concepts of the article or... Do they go a little further in the reporting, or is it really just to do a show-and-tell for people who are reading Challenged? I'd say they go further. Uh, We have, uh, with the Palm Oil Fiefdom, there's four short films, and each of these short films is about a character. Um, Three of them are in the story, and one of them is not. But it really, I think it really adds to the experience of reading the story, to to see these people in their own natural environments. there's certainly something that's added from watching these. Absolutely. Personalizes that voice. No question about it. I only saw one. I only saw like a trailer. How do? How would I have found the little film? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, they're being published. Uh, the first oh, one was I published see. today, actually. And you oh. can go to the Facebook page of Manga Bay or the Gecko Project. Okay. And yeah, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, all the good stuff. Well, we're going we're gonna to circle back to that at the end of the show where you are allowed to promote yourself shamelessly, as I like to say. Anyway, let's talk a little bit about what is the first... The first segment, you describe the palm oil fiefdom. So what do you mean by that? So a fiefdom, we chose that title because it highlights the corruption that characterizes sort of the shadow system that's behind Indonesia's deforestation and the land rights crisis that is happening in Indonesia today. So the series Indonesia for Sale is all about that shadow system and the different articles expose different aspects of that system. And it's all about corruption and how it's driving uh, climate change and all these other environmental impacts. So a fiefdom is the domain of a feudal lord, right? And and more informally, it can also refer to any system that's controlled by one dominant individual. So Indonesia is supposed to be a democracy, right? Right. But what we see unfolding across the country is politicians abusing their power over land and natural resources to benefit themselves, to benefit their inner circles, and to benefit companies. And this is happening in various sectors, but it's very egregious in the palm oil industry. And it's, one, it's at the root of the explosion of the palm oil industry in Indonesia over the past 20 years. Um. 
what what does palm oil do? Why do we need so much palm oil? I see it in it's in your food. It's a industrial lubricant. It's used in, you know, what else? I mean, it seems like it's kind of like everywhere and in everything. And I just want you to take me back a little bit because I don't know anything about the industry. And I bet most people don't. Sure. Yeah. It's a, it's a really important thing to understand. Um, palm oil is used in many, many things. Um, it's used as a cooking oil in mm-hmm. the developing world, China, India, Malaysia, Indonesia. Um, it's used in consumer goods in the West and the East. Um, it's in snack foods, ice cream, frozen pizza. It's in detergents, soap, makeup, lipstick. Uh, it's used as a biofuel in Europe. It has been. They're actually phasing it out now because of the environmental problems. Right. Uh, but also now increasingly as a biofuel in Indonesia and Malaysia as those governments try to prop up the industry. Sure. So it's used in a great deal of products. Um, it sounds like one of the most widely used and multi-applicational uh, products on the market. I mean, yeah, it's I, really it's really cheap. Yeah. So it's cheaper than other oils, which is why it's become so widely used, and it's very efficient. So it's so palm oil comes from fruit that's grown on these plantations, mm-hmm. and um, you have these massive plantations in Indonesia and Malaysia, and increasingly. Latin America and Africa and other places. Yes. Um, there's big companies, big plantations. There's also smallholders. Um, so it's a mix. But, um, yeah, they grow the fruit, and then it's sent to a mill. They turn the fruit into palm oil, and then it's sent to a refinery where they turn it into more complex chemicals for mm-hmm. export all over the world. You know, PepsiCo is a big consumer of palm oil. Unilever, some of the biggest companies. Yeah, we're going to be talking about that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so what you describe um, when you talk about the fiefdom, the, there's sort of um, so when the dictator Suharto was finally stepped away, um, and then the country achieved democracy, quote unquote, and then now it's been regionalized into these really very aptly called fiefdoms that are run by guys called bupati. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's like a tribal, it's almost like a council, or, you know, like a head man of a, of a group. It's not, I mean, it seemed to me that it was sort of less governmental and more sort of weirdly tribal in a way, because, perhaps because of the nepotism that exists around that concept. What was, what was the original thought behind developing this bupati system? Sure. So the bupati system dates back to the colonial era when Indonesia was a Dutch colony. Um, but bupatis haven't always been as powerful as they are now. So for the first 50 years of Indonesia's history, it was founded in 1945 as an independent country. It was run, had two presidents, so it was essentially run by dictators. Right. Um, in 1998, President Suharto, who was a military general, was finally forced from power. And Indonesia entered an era of democracy. So as part of the democratic reforms um, that came after Suharto's fall... There was this massive decentralization of power from the central government in Jakarta to local governments all across the enormous country. Yeah. And so bupatis, and bupati is just another word for district chief. Right. So it's the, it's, it's the people who run districts all across Indonesia. And there's it. hundreds of districts. Um, these bupatis gained vast new powers over land and resources. And they proceeded to abuse these powers um, by handing out land to whoever they really deemed fit to develop their districts in right. a vacuum of accountability and scrutiny. Right, right. Well, that's the thing that I really wanted to get clear about was how was it that these bupati suddenly became essentially the deciders and also the people who were literally selling 
this land to other companies in order to create more and more palm oil plantations? Like, where did they get... Because as you point out in the article, obviously a lot of the local people are displaced when that happens. They're not compensated, which is the, the great tragedy of land grabbing. So how... I mean, I, I, I'm just fascinated by how these guys managed to get the right to give away land to multinational corporations. Sure, yeah. Well, giving more power to the Bupatis was supposed to make government more accountable yeah. to people because instead of power over resources being exercised from Jakarta, which is you know thousands of miles away from many parts of the country, right. it, it was put in the hands of these local leaders who were elected officials. Um, but the Bupatis are notorious for being really corrupt in Indonesia. So... Um, there's a lot of corruption around licensing and plenty of other stuff, too. Um, now, Bupatis were given the power to hand out permits for oil right. palm plantations. And that's what we examine in the palm oil fiefdom and other articles in the series. Um, now, when we think about, you know, how many... Uh, the central government is also a gatekeeper in, in some areas of Indonesia. The forestry ministry, mm -hmm. if a company wants to develop a plantation, in, in many areas they also need to go through the forestry ministry. But what we see in the district that we looked at in this article is that the ministry was ignored and the Bupati really exercised complete control over uh, this process. And where and where permit holders could then, def, you know, cut down forest and, and grow palm oil. Exactly. And grab people's land. So yeah, and grab people's land. So talk a little bit about um, just to give people an idea, let's talk a little bit about the environmental impacts of the development of the palm oil industry, like in the district that you describe here, because, you know, they even encroached on a national forest, obviously a failure on the part of the forest, the Ministry of Forestry. Um, but what are some of the other implications for this as far as the local people go? Sure. So... Indonesia is ground zero for the loss of ancient rainforest, right? It's one of these countries where that's losing just an immense amount of forest every year. Yeah. And this is driving climate change. And a big reason that this is happening is because of the expansion of the palm oil industry. As these oil palm growers look for more and more land on which to expand. So they're expanding into forests. They're expanding into peatlands. Um, they're burning peatlands, which releases an immense amount of carbon into the atmosphere. Right. And so Indonesia has sort of gained this reputation as a climate villain. Um, it consistently mm -hmm. ranks toward the top of the list of greenhouse gas emitters, sometimes even right. comes in third behind the U.S. and China. Right. And while those, are, those countries' emissions are tied to burning fossil fuels, Indonesia's emissions are almost all from deforestation. And peat and burning. peat burning, yeah. Right. That's a fascinating thing. And why don't the local people, they don't use peat as a source of fuel like they did in Ireland, for example? That, yeah, I've, I've wondered the same thing. Uh, I've never heard of that happening in Indonesia, but maybe it's, a, maybe it's a different. should be different. It might be a different compound. It might be different from what we think of typically as peat, I guess. I don't know. But uh, that was something that struck me I mean, yeah, while it, I was doing about Indonesia it. Indonesia has the most peat of any country in the world. Yeah, I mean, you would think that that would be the thing that they would actually exploit in terms of fuel, at least locally, right? Um, so the, the land grabs like this, so most of the companies that were established that got these permits seem to be Indonesian companies or shell companies that were owned by relatives of the Bupati. Okay, so we got the basic nepotism and corruption going on in the local level. That's cool. But when they take the land, when they um, assign these permits, 
what do they what are they telling the people whose land has just been signed over? Like why don't the people revolt? I guess is my question. Like their their land is being taken away. Their small holdings of palm oil, which they may have themselves, where they grow their food, um, the environmental impacts of the industry on how they on their water support, their water supplies, their fishing industry, like all of that stuff. What, where is the pushback? Well, the answer is they do revolt, and it happened in in Serion, which is the district that we look at in this mm-hmm. article. Um, Sorry, what, what was the question again? <laughs> there probably wasn't one. You know, I love to hear myself talk. <laughs> I guess my question was really, um, was like, you know, when, when these, when these Bupati assign these, uh, you know, assign these permits to the shell companies and then, you know, people are displaced, like where, you know, where do they go and how do the Bupatis continually get reelected? Mm. Because like the guy that you describe is elected several times and then his son runs for office. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of, um, shall we say, local uh, censure about what was happening, even though obviously so many people were being displaced from even just being able to grow their own food. Sure. So when a company gets a permit from the government, they're supposed to negotiate with local landowners for the right to use their land. So it's not as simple as we have the permit, we can do whatever we want, at least in theory. Right. So the problem in Indonesia is that many of these local landowners are actually indigenous communities and they don't practice the same forms of ownership that we do in, you know, the capitalist West. Right. So an indigenous community in Indonesia typically practices a form of communal land ownership. Right. And they also don't have paper documents that say, I own this piece of land. Um, and that's really a failure of the government. So, um, now the government doesn't recognize their form of communal ownership in most cases and typically treats these people as squatters on state-owned land. Right. So um, when the company comes in with their permit, they say, well, I've got the piece of paper that says I own this land. The people say, well, this is the land that my family's been using for generations. Right. Then we have what's called a land conflict that ensues. And often what happens is the company just goes in there and bulldozes, you know, whatever's there. And people will resist, um, starting usually by protesting, um, when we see this in Sarion, the people there, they protested. They then took direct action against these companies. You know, they might block a company road or burn down a company office and or maybe steal some fruit from the plantation. Um, and then usually what happens after that is the company brings in the police, the yeah. riot police. And, you know, the police typically defend the company's interests. Right. So they've been bought off by the by the by the corporate interests. Yeah. Um, and the other thing about land grabbing, which, um, and this is this such a familiar playbook because it's the same exact thing in South America, in Africa, in African countries as well. Um, only for things like soy and corn for meat production, but it's, it's literally the same playbook. Um, but they often, the companies are supposed to be at least a lot of the American or Western companies usually come in with a promise of like, Oh, we're going to develop a road system. We're going to dig wells. We're going to create a water treatment plant. We're going to, you know, they, they promise, all of these great things, which hardly ever actually happen, I have to admit, but they are the promises, and it's sort of how they mollify the population as they move in. Is that also the case in Indonesia? Are they making those same promises, or they can just kind of do what they want? Yeah, no, they're definitely making promises and trying to present an image of themselves as sustainable companies. Right. Um, so, you know, this whole explosion of palm oil and, and oil palm plantations in Indonesia. Uh, the justification for it was that it would help ordinary people, right? Yes. That's why it was 
ostensibly allowed to happen. So, you know, these um, these large plantations, corporate run plantations, were supposed to be accompanied by small holdings, which is like a little plantation for the community. And there's actually right. a law in Indonesia that says uh, 20%, companies have to set aside 20% of their plantations for local communities. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that was so really So there the, is a law that says There is a that. law, yeah. And even before that law was passed in 2007, companies promised small holdings. Mm-hmm. So that was the premise by which this industry was allowed to expand so greatly in Indonesia. And right. what, what we see in so many places is that the companies just don't provide the small holdings, including in the district that we looked at yeah. in the palm oil fiefdom. fiefdom. So um, people get really upset about that. And it, it also sort of defies the stereotype that indigenous communities are always against oil palm. Many of them are, but many of them actually... Grow it themselves. Yeah, they grow it themselves. They have small plots of it. And they're open to the idea of large-scale palm, oil palm, but they don't really, they don't always understand what the companies are really going to do. And now you see more awareness of that as, as people hear reports of what's happened elsewhere and are just rejecting right. the incursions of companies right off the bat. Yeah, because you could imagine, like, if they really get hip, then they're going to be starting to collectivize their own, you know, collectivize their production in a way that allows them to compete a little more successfully on the market as well as push back a little bit more against these companies that come in. Um, I wanted to ask, first of all, can you, I mean, we were talking just a minute ago about sort of the the land grabbing that goes on in other parts of the world. Can you kind of connect the dots a little bit? I mean, are other, you know, the land grabbing in Southeast Asia, the land grabbing in Africa also includes for palm oil production. Um, what is there a is there is it all the same all the way around the world? And who are the companies that are doing this besides the in Indonesia, obviously local people, but in Africa and in, in South America, that's not a normal crop for them, as far as I know. So there are big multinational companies that are coming in and doing this. What describe some of those people? Sure. Yeah. So Indonesia today is the world's largest palm oil producing country. Mm-hmm. And together with Malaysia, it accounts for like 80, 90 percent of world Wowee. palm oil production. Yeah. But the industry is expanding into other countries now. They're going into Africa. They're going into Latin America. Yeah. They're going into Papua New Guinea, Thailand, Cambodia in search of land. And demand for palm oil is rising and it's projected to keep rising. Um, so a lot of these companies are Malaysian. And actually, that's how the industry went into Indonesia. It kind of started on a oh. large scale in Malaysia. Yeah. Right. And then they sort of ran out of land there. So a lot of those companies look to Indonesia, their neighbor. And there's plenty of Indonesian companies now, too. So some of these companies are now the ones who are expanding into other countries in Africa. Yeah. Um, so they're doing the same thing. They're land grabbing as well. There are reports of land there. grabs in, in those countries. And um, I don't know as much about those countries as I do about Indonesia. But yeah. You know, I know that the structure of government's a little bit different, so the form that land grabbing and corruption takes is likely to be different, but I would hazard to guess that the same sort of practices are being done. Um, but it's not only Indonesian and Malaysian companies. There's plenty of companies from other countries, too, that are... Well, I was going to say, you mentioned Unilever at the top of the program. Like, um, that's a huge multinational company. I forget what its origin. I know it plays a big role in the United States, but I, I believe it's European and originally, maybe even German. But um, And that's one of the biggest companies in the world, right? What, I mean, is there, are there any, um, is there any pushback? Is there any public outcry? Are people aware that companies like Unilever that have a forward, you know, a face 
in a place like America where we actually might, you know, people might get mad about stuff like this, although not many of us, but, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, there's certainly more attention being given to this issue. Yeah. And there's more and more pressure being put on these companies. Um, So the palm oil supply chain is really complex, right? You've got Mm -hmm. plantations that grow the palm fruit. You've got processors, refiners that turn the fruit into palm oil and then other chemicals. You've got uh, consumer goods companies that use the palm oil. And Unilever is the world's largest user of palm oil. And it makes all these different products that you can buy at the store. So um, Unilever now has a commitment. They've committed to purging their operations of deforestation, of peatlands destruction, of land grabbing and labor abuses and other human rights violations. Um, so they've made this commitment. But the issue is Unilever isn't the one that's growing right. the, the palm fruit. So these commitments are sort of beginning to cascade down the supply chain. But they haven't, they're only just starting to reach the plantation level, which is where it really matters. And there's a lot of problems with these commitments. Um, you know, some people are less enthused about them than others. Um, you know, to if Unilever can say that its palm oil is free of all these problems, they need to be able to trace their supply chain and yeah. determine where their palm oil is coming from, which they are unable to do, and nobody is able to do at this time because really? of how complex the supply chain is. Yeah. Whoa. So there's been some progress um, in terms of corporate efforts to fix this, but for as many companies like Unilever that have these commitments, there's other companies that don't. So you sure. get the quote-unquote sustainable palm oil that goes to, you know, starting to go to companies like Unilever, but then, you know, other companies that are less scrupulous are still there to buy all the unsustainably produced palm oil. And what we see in Indonesia is that the destruction of the environment is continuing apace, as mm-hmm. is, are, is land grabbing, as the industry expands east in the country mm-hmm. to the last kind of frontier, which is Papua and other islands in eastern Indonesia, yeah. as well as to other countries. Wow. Wow. Let's take a quick break. Um, We'll do a little sponsor drop, and then we'll be right back uh, with Philip Jacobson talking more about grillian grabbing in Indonesia and the palm oil industry. Stay tuned. I don't think there's anybody worthy to run this company, but the people who built it. I have employees who've been with me for more than 30 years, and plus, each and every one of them deserves to be an owner. That's just the way it ought to be, and that's just the way it is. This is Bob Moore. He and his wife, Charlie, started Bob's Red Mill almost four decades ago. Today, they offer one of the largest lines of organic whole grain foods in the country. And in 2010, on his 81st birthday, Bob gifted ownership of the company to his employees. I'd received plenty of offers to buy my company over the years, but selling out never felt like the right thing to do. When the time comes to let someone else run this show, I can't imagine selling it to a stranger. Giving the company to my hardworking employees just feels right. The company now has an Employee Stock Ownership Plan, or ESOP. Stock is put in a retirement plan for all of its employees. When employees retire, the company buys back their shares. According to the National Center for Employee Ownership, about 11,000 companies in the U.S. currently run as ESOPs. It just shows how much faith and trust Bob has in us. That's Bo Thomas, the company's engineer and maintenance superintendent. 
He's been with Bob's Red Mill for over 27 years and has put his four children through college in the process. For all of us, it's, it's more than just a job. And, and obviously, it's the same way for Bob, too. Bob is still very active in the company. He's the president and CEO, and you'll find him working at the mill just about every day. Because when you love something this much, you want to be a part of it. Well, I may have given them the company, but the boss part is still mine. Bob's Red Mill is committed to sharing only the freshest, best-tasting whole grain foods on the planet. Learn more about their mission of good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. That's right. This is what doesn't kill you, Food Industry Insights. And I'm giving you some insights into the palm oil industry, which basically has uh, flowed into every, pretty much every aspect of consumer life in this country and probably around the world. Um, as my guest, Phil Jacobson, who is the author of this fantastic series of Manga Bay, um, where they examined the impacts. And, and I'm going to return to the, to the name of this series, which is called... Indonesia for sale. Anyway, so Phil, Phil and I were just chatting in the break there. We're going to talk for a second again about the permitting process, because that is so like the way these bupatis get to divvy up the land. They give out the permits usually to shell. They create shell companies or they give it to their relatives who create shell companies. Um, Talk a little bit more about that crazy permitting process. And then we'll talk a little bit about um, sort of what happens if you protest. Sure. So, as I said before, in Indonesia, it's these bupatis or district chiefs that have the power to hand out permits for oil palm plantations. Yeah. And so there's a lot of corruption around this licensing. Typically, what happens is a business person or a company that wants a permit will just bribe the bupati, Mm -hmm. you know, paying for permits. And there's been several cases like this that have been exposed. now, what happened in Serian District, which is the subject of the palm oil fiefdom, mm-hmm. the first installment of this series, is a little bit more complex. So what happened there was, first, the family and cronies of Bupati, whose name is Darwan Ali, his relatives and friends set up shell companies. Next, Darwan Ali gave permits to these shell companies. And finally, his family and cronies sold the shell companies to major palm oil firms. And these are some of the biggest companies in Southeast Asia, and they're owned by some of the wealthiest families in the region. Um, The second richest man in Malaysia, one of the billionaire family from Indonesia. So in the article, we identify 18 companies Mm. that were connected to Darwan through his family and cronies. Mm -hmm. And um, most of them weren't developed in the end, but three of them were. And these three companies are owned by the billionaire Rachmat family, which is an Indonesian family. And they were developed and they proceeded to become some of the most problematic companies in Serian district for people and the environment. So in terms of abusing people's rights and and basically just bulldozing everybody's farm or everybody's whatever, their crops. Yeah, definitely. Um, that, that that family, I, I, I'm now sort of blanking on, on the exact details of this, but this was a guy, the younger guy was educated, I think, in the United States. Cornell University. At Cornell. Uh, you know, hobnobs with, you know, the, the rich and powerful around the world, and was also named to, like, a Forbes list of, 
you know, phenomenally groovy 40 under 40 kind of guy. You know what I mean? You know, those lists that they're always coming out with. And he's like, he's in this list as if he's, you know, this great innovative thinker when in fact what he is, is a freaking robber. (laughs) I mean, mean, like, why didn't Forbes do a little more due diligence? I mean, it kind of amazed me when I read that because it was just, it seemed very careless in terms of journalism. Sure. Well, you know, Forbes, it's very pro-business, pro-economic growth and... (laughs) You know, I mean, the palm oil industry is often cited as a pillar of Indonesia's economy. Um, and how did that start? We didn't talk about the beginning of the palm oil mm. industry, but that that's a relatively new industry to Indonesia, isn't that right? Yeah. Weren't they mostly like a timber and mm-hmm. um, natural resources, like um, you know, mining, timbering, timber production, and mining? I mm-hmm. think were the two big. Um, you know, because they are so blessed with so many different natural resources. When did palm oil get its foot in the door? Yeah, uh, you're right. Indonesia, it's a huge archipelago country. It has all these natural resources um, covered in forests. Uh, there's a lot of deforestation now. But during the Suharto dictatorship, yeah. it was mainly logging. So right. Suharto in Jakarta would hand out permits to companies owned by his cronies to log rainforests. Pretty simple. Right. Um, eventually the deforestation was getting so out of control that they reined that in. And so the next model was oil palm. Um, This would have been in the 90s. Um, Uh There were already some oil palm plantations in the 80s and 90s. And it really started in, the industry really started on a large scale in Malaysia, I think Mm -hmm. in the 60s. And um, and then, you know, Malaysia kind of ran out of land and those companies started looking south. At the same time, Indonesia was trying to use palm oil to as a as a development model right so that was going on sort of on a smaller scale in the 90s and early 2000s and it was really after the fall of Suharto with the rise of the Bupatis and the new powers that they were given that the industry ex- experienced this incredible explosion yeah and you know I mean just look at Sarion before Darwin Ali took power there were like seven oil palm companies operating there you know, and then in his first year, he issues dozens of permits to companies. How, how much acreage are we talking about? Can you give people an idea of like, because I mean, in the in your feature, mm-hmm. you see the maps, and you know, without that on the radio, yeah. I can't really convey to people how vast the tracts of lands are. Sure. So Sarion as a district is about the size of Connecticut, mm-hmm. and today about a fifth of it is covered in oil palm, oil palm plantations, and actually with the all the permits that were handed out, much more of it was licensed out to investors. And for various reasons, not all of that land was developed. A lot of it was in lands that you're not supposed to develop, but the Bupati handed permits there anyway. Um, And most of that land eventually wasn't developed. But yeah, it's huge areas. I mean, each one of these licenses that Darwin Ali gave to companies owned by his family and cronies is the size of a small city. Wow. You know, as the size of Brooklyn. It's right. the size of Barcelona. We're talking 10,000 oh, to 20,000 hectares, which... Yeah. So really immense swaths of land. And, and just to... Re- besides the... Because um, one of the things we haven't really talked... We talked about the deforestation, and but we haven't really talked about the impact of oil palm on the actual soil and the waterways, which has been significant. Am I right? Mm. I mean, I, I read in the article that, like, the fishing industry has basically died. People can't really fish. The water is very polluted. Mm. Um, what What is being pumped into the water uh, from the processing of these fruits that is so toxic? Yeah. Or is it all runoff from, like, pesticides and fertilizer and stuff like that? I believe it's runoff, yeah. Okay. So it's... Um 
so Serion, at the heart of the district of Serion, there's a big lake. It's called Lake Simbulu. Mm-hmm. And um, up until the palm oil explosion, it was a shipbuilding center and uh, it had a lot of fisheries, too. So um, actually, before the palm oil explosion, there was this boom in illegal logging, and that really took out the shipbuilding industry. Uh-huh. Um, the palm oil plantations that came in to replace it caused a lot of water pollution. And yeah, I believe it's runoff pesticides from the plantations. Right, um, right. Oil palms are really... Um, to grow oil palm, you need to use a lot of a lot of agricultural inputs. Yeah. yeah, a lot of agricultural inputs. It's a high input crop. Yeah. So Oof. and water use it uses a lot of water. Uses a lot of water, and wow. it's really interesting because the issue of water pollution as a result of oil palm expansion doesn't seem to be an issue nationally in Indonesia, but everywhere I've been, communities are always complaining about that the pollution of waterways, and part of it is that the law says companies aren't supposed to plant within a certain distance from waterways, but yeah. in practice, they just do it anyway. Sure. And so in Sarion, you could see these dried up rivers that were just you know, surrounded by oil palm. Wow. And, you know, the bupatis that are supposed to be regulating these companies typically don't. Yeah, because they've already sold off their shell company and the shell company has been bought by the way. <laughs> making like, money from them. You know, they're, yeah, I mean, the chain of, of ownership has already left their station, as it were. And so why do they care? You know, they don't have to worry about it. But what about people who protest? I mean, you mentioned that there's been a lot of civil unrest around this in the last decade or so. Um, is there? Is it, I mean, is it, like I was thinking to myself, and I mean, you've already reassured me on this, but I thought even for you as an investigative journalist, how dangerous is it, how dangerous is it for people to protest? Um, is there a lot of government um, militarization around these communities to crack down on this? You've made it already clear that the police are completely in the pocket of the palm oil industry. Um, so who's, you know, like what happens if somebody gets mad? They, they just go to jail for a couple months and they, they don't get killed. They're not beheaded or, you know, their land burned or, you know, any of the other nice things that usually happens with this kind of yeah. <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> well, in Serion, many people were jailed for vandalizing company property, right. stealing palm fruit which the people argued, well, this is my land. You planted on my land. I'm going to take some of this palm fruit. Um, so we talked to a number of people who were jailed for several months. Um, Indonesia doesn't appear to be as dangerous as the Philippines or Brazil, where large numbers of activists and journalists are killed every year. Absolutely. Yeah, those same doesn't seem to happen as much in Indonesia. But many people do go to jail. They're criminalized. Um, and once they're criminalized, is it hard for them to find employment, for example? Like they would never work for, they would never be allowed to work in a palm oil plantation again. Yeah, they might example. not get a job at the plantation. Um, <coughs> Although you described that the wages are horribly low for people to pick the fruit. Yeah, they I mean, are. They, they definitely, it's not an economic boon in the sense that, you know, everybody's getting rich off of this palm oil company, only the people who own it are getting rich, sure. obviously. Yeah. I mean, what typically, I mean, what typically happens is the best jobs on the plantation and with the company go to outsiders who are seen as more skilled and harder working mm-hmm. than the local populations in a place like Borneo. Yeah. And so the jobs that are left for them are laborers on the plantations, which right. pay not enough to live with dignity. Right. So, I mean, what happens is these companies come in, they kind of sweep the people off their land, they pollute the environment and, you know, fisheries collapse. And so the local people who could previously derive livelihoods from the forest. Right, subsistence from, farming, whatever. Yeah, yeah, from their fields, from, from the rivers. Um, they don't have that anymore, and all that's really left are the plantations. And they don't even get the best jobs, so there's just these labor jobs on the plantations. And um, it's a 
it can be a grim situation in way some to places. keep a population down. Yeah. Really? I mean, this is like, this is such an intense capitalist, you know, like the very worst of it. So um, because some, some you mentioned earlier that um, this was a little bit of a development idea, and I'm always curious to see like what the World Bank role or some of the other NGOs that operate in these developing countries, like what role have they played in um either developing or attracting industries like this as a sort of, you know, idea to create a better economic model for the country. And it so often winds up being a total disaster. And this clearly is one of those examples. Can you describe a little bit of how the World Bank or, or some other organizations have been instrumental in introducing and, and, and promoting this industry to the local populations? Sure. So the World Bank actually pushed a more corporate run model of oil palm. So in the 1980s, the Indonesian government was experimenting with oil palm as a development model. Mm -hmm. And there's various models, but the typical one is that you've got a company that builds a mill to process the palm fruit and then sets up a series of plantations around the mill. And originally it was 80% of the plantation land would be run by local communities. Right. So they've got their plantation, their small holdings, and they've got a mill that they can sell their fruit to. Everybody wins, right? Right. right. So the it mo- seems like a great idea. It does. And actually, oil palm is such a profitable crop that it could be used to benefit people. But what happened in Indonesia around the time that Suharto, the dictator, fell in the 90s and the World Bank was kind of pushing all these loan conditions and um, the model was made to be more corporate oriented mm-hmm. um, on the grounds that it would be more efficient and it would be better for everybody because the whole system would be more productive. Um, So the model that we have now is 20% for communities and 80% of the plantation for are are run by companies. Um, So, but yeah, even that is, is, you know, that 20% doesn't even usually go to the companies. And that's another thing we're looking at in the Indonesia for sale series. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about what, what are the next articles coming up since we're running out of time here? What, what else are we going to be looking at? So the palm oil fiefdom, the first installment, focuses on corruption in the licensing process. Right. Um, other articles examine different aspects of this whole system. So there's going to be one article that looks at the connection between money and politics. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest corruption scandals in recent Indonesian history was the bribery of the country's top judge, Akhil Mokhtar, to swing an election in Borneo, mm. a local election, a Bupati's election. So the Bupati brought, challenged the result of the election, which he lost, and then bribed the judge to Just swing it. find in his favor. And yeah. he was caught red-handed delivering the money. <laughs> so what this article does, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it traces the money back to a, a palm oil land deal. So, yeah. So we, we, we can start to see how these sorts of corrupt licensing and, and with the palm oil industry affects politics and right. corrupts politics. Well, even the fiefdom article really described in great detail, like how these guys bribe. Um, they basically go through the community. They give out money. They give out like ramen noodles mm. with like dollar bills attached to them. I mean, it was really, it was so bald faced and, you know, huge sums of money, you know, hundreds, tens of thousands of dollars pass between different people who want them to throw their little group into that election pool or whatever. I mean, it was, so that's, so that's the next one is money and politics. Yeah. And then what's the one after that? It's a three part series, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a three part series. Uh, the, the final installment 
moves east in Indonesia to one uh-huh. of the... It goes to a place where the deforestation hasn't happened yet or it's just starting to happen. Huh. And it's similar in that there's there's all these permits that have been issued that are very kind of shady. And this article looks at a particular company and the people behind this company and, and the methods they're using to conceal their identities and the connections with business people from Malaysia, from Yemen. Um, Whoa. It's really a big, a big thing that's happening. There. So you have Middle Eastern countries, you have from all over sort of the Middle East, the Near East, and then Southeast Asia are all involved in this. In this one, yeah. And, yeah. And then we've got another, another article that we, we, we meant to do as part of the original crop, but we're saving it for next year. It's, it, it focuses on the process by which companies acquire land from communities. Yeah. So we touch on that in the palm oil fiefdom. Right. But this article is all about that. And it's, in my view, it's really the most shocking part of it is, is how these, the, the, the tactics that these companies use to grab land from communities. Right, right. Very interesting. I can't wait to read that. I can't wait to read the rest. Um, and I'm going to make one final point here before we wrap this up and you promote yourself shamelessly. Um, and that is that what you just described in terms of these multinationals, or rather these these shell corporations, in other words, not knowing who is actually behind them, the concealing mm. of uh, identity and uh, nationality in these corporations, this is something that is ubiquitous to this land-grabbing thing. And by the way, happens right here in the United States as well. Because I did a piece a couple of months ago um, about land-grabbing in the United States, which is not something you think is really happening here. But in fact, it is. And there's quite a bit of arable, uh, you know, agricultural land that is being sold out from under Americans. Um, you know, and I don't mean that to sound like, uh, you know, there's some vast right-wing conspiracy, but it kind of is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's, you know, you don't, there are laws in this country that dictate who is allowed to acquire agricultural land. Some states are more strict than others. But what happens is now that we have so much financial and institutional investment in agriculture, there are countries, there are entities from all over the world who will create an American company and use that shell company to buy up, you know, a couple of hundred thousand of acres of agricultural land um, that they stockpile or they use right now or, you know, is somehow it's taken out of our system and how we grow our food. And in the future, that's not a big deal now. But in the future, this is going to be a very big deal. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But that is absolutely that's going to be a disaster for these other countries that have very little recourse. Right. I mean, just to wrap it up, what is the recourse for a nation that is experiencing this kind of land grab? Yeah, that's a great question. It could be a disaster. And what we're hoping is that the lesson from Serion and other districts in Indonesia can be applied elsewhere, both within Indonesia and other countries where this global land rush is happening. It's not only palm oil. It's, it's of course. all kinds of industries, extractive and agribusiness industries. Yeah. So, I mean, in Indonesia, in my view, it really comes down to the government. The government has to crack down on this corruption. So the people and government of Indonesia. Um, what we're seeing now is there's all these initiatives being done by the international community and, and big corporations, these commitments that they're making. Um, but these problems are still going on. And I think that unless this corruption at the root of the system is addressed, then it's going to keep happening. Um, that said, I think there are ways that the international community can help the people of Indonesia address this problem. Um, in, the Indonesian government is actually very susceptible to pressure from abroad. They care greatly about their image on the world stage. 
And just for example, there was a case in eastern Indonesia, um, a beautiful archipelago called Aru. It's really a paradise. And um, there was a company, a big company called the Minara Group, that got permits to develop sugarcane plantations on 70% of the entire Aru archipelago. Mm -hmm. So they're really going to eat the entire thing. Mm. Um, There was a big local movement against these companies, and it actually spread and became an international movement through various figures, had connections abroad, and it was a really compelling story. And um, a lot of Indonesian celebrities got involved. There was this hashtag, Save Aru, and it became a really big deal. And eventually the permits were all made to expire. The government wouldn't let the thing go through. So it's really a great case of how this sort of thing can be stopped. And it was a great example of collaboration between local people on the ground and people who live all over the world. So we're going to feature that case in one of our other articles. Terrific. Um, but actually, the same company is now doing the same thing in another part of Indonesia. Sure. There's not a lot of attention there. Right. So and they're probably could, doing it all over the world. Could, I mean, could be. You know, depending on what, I mean, sugarcane, why not? I mean, you could do that all over Africa and South America, too, just as sure, easily as yeah. Indonesia. You could be doing that in the United States, and nobody would know that, you know. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. well, Phil, we have to wrap it up there. But thank you so, so much for joining us. Phil Jacobson, do you have a website? Do you have, like... Uh, I don't have a personal website, but you can read my work on mangabay.com. Uh-huh. Um, and I hope that people follow us on Facebook, The Gecko Project, and Mangabay have Facebook pages, Instagram accounts, and that's where you can see... Um, the short films that we're producing as part of the Indonesia for Sale series and the subsequent articles in the series, they're, gonna, they're being published both on mangabay.com and on the Gecko Project's own website, right. which is www.thegeckoproject.org. Uh, the stories are also being published in Indonesian. So you can read them in both languages. Yeah, the Ge- both on the Gecko Project and Indonesian. So we already know that we've heard that the president has read the article. Wow. Ministers have read it. We hear it's getting a lot of uh, reception in Indonesia in the government and the development community. So it's, yeah. it's, it's, it'll be exciting to see what, what can arise from it. Yeah, well, I, I hope the best for, for the whole country. I mean, I, I, you know, the predations of capitalism. I really am, you know, I was kind of a commie when I was young. And, and then I kind of, you know, I got more into the mainstream and capitalism. And then the older I get, the more I'm just like, oh, my God, this is the worst system ever. <laughs> Something is going to change. We will have a revolution, but it won't be in my lifetime. Anyway, thank you so much for joining me. And um, thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. Thanks to my wonderful sponsor, Bob Red, Bob's Red Mill, uh, without whom Heritage Radio Network probably would not be broadcasting at this time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And thanks to my wonderful engineer, Vitor. See you next week, folks. See ya. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.